Okay, let's hope we have the ARS uh, up and going for Susan. Susan Buckbinder, uh, Professor of Medicine at UCSF and uh, very involved in the health department in San Francisco, really uh, along with, I think, New York, one of the very academic uh, health departments in the country. Susan has been very active in vaccine development, but also very involved in our Getting to Zero campaign in San Francisco, and obviously that involves questions of PrEP. So you're going to walk us through PrEP. Thanks, Susan. Thanks so much, Paul. And uh, I'm really so excited to be here in New York, which is really uh, one of the early uh, epicenters of the epidemic, but also where we're going to see uh, changes happen uh, in stopping this epidemic. Uh, these are my uh, disclosures, and these are the learning objectives. Um, and then uh, what we're going to talk about are four components here. I'm going to start by talking about who needs PrEP the most. So I'm going to be talking about prevention. Um, we need to know the epidemiology in order to know how we target our uh, most effective prevention strategies. Talk a little bit about PrEP effectiveness in different populations um, and things that may influence that. Some common issues that come up in counseling patients and in administering PrEP. And then look at how well we're doing at a population level. So um, we're going to give this a try. Uh, what's happening with the U.S. epidemic, and um, Joe gave some of this information, but uh, you've got choices of new diagnoses are decreasing in all risk and age groups. They're rising in African-American women, um, rising in young men age 13 to 24, or in uh, 2015 there were more infections in the over 45 than in the under 25 age group. So let's give this a try. Looks like it's working. Kristen's a magician. Okay, let's see what we got. Okay, so we miss, you know, I think we tipped you in that direction, and I'm going to show you that actually nationally infections are rising in a slightly larger age group, and it's actually some of the older folks that we need to really also pay some attention to. So, um, in the United States, we're seeing this uh, stabilizing and actually decline of new infections in women, which is great, including in African-American women. Um, but we see a level uh, number of new diagnoses in men, and that's predominantly because of the epidemic in men who have sex with men. And if you actually look at where the diagnoses are occurring, it's 86% of women are being infected sexually from men, and 86% of the men also have contact with men, some of whom are injection drug users, but predominantly this is, is a sexually transmitted uh, infection, um, and that's because of the great strides that have been made in uh, treatment of substance use. 56% decline in people who inject drugs over um, this period of time from 2008 to 2014, and we are finally moving in the right direction. An 18% decline over that time, 36% decline in heterosexuals, 26% in uh, men 13 to 44, and actually we are seeing an 18% decline nationally in the 13 to 24 year age group. And as Joe stated, we are seeing in a number of, in, in DC and in a number of states, we're seeing a decline, including in New York, a 5% decline um, uh, in new diagnoses. But if you look at men who have sex with men, where we're, we're seeing this decline now, finally, in the 13 to 24-year age group, but we're seeing an increase in the 25 to 34-year age group. And so the reason I put that initial question is, is that uh, in about age is that 
the 25 to 34 year olds are, we're, we're seeing a lot of diagnoses here. It's not to ignore this group. We do have a lot of infections here, and I'm going to show you uh, local data uh, shortly. But if you look at the 45 and older, that actually accounts for 25% of new diagnoses. And so it's just a plea to be sure that we're asking our, our older patients um, at the ripe age of 45 and older about sexual activity and offering PrEP where that may be indicated. So we know that this is not a heter uh, homogeneous uh, epidemic, it's a heterogeneous one, with the South very heavily impacted. New York State also, unfortunately, in that highest um, rate of new diagnoses. And uh, as Joe said, Dimitri Daskalakis did a fabulous plenary talk specifically on what you all are doing here in New York, uh, and it's, it's very exciting. I do recommend that you see the talk because it really does highlight the work that many of you are doing. And you can see that we have this dramatic decline in number of new diagnoses in people who inject drugs in New York whereas um, we have a, a decline, but it's much slower in men who have sex with men. So that's where the predominant epidemic is here. Uh, more than 80% are in men. Um, most are in men who have sex with men. We see this racial and ethnic disparities with very high rates in African Americans, and as uh, uh, Joe pointed out, rising numbers in um, Latinos nationally. In New York City, it's the 20 to 29-year-old age group, but again, we're still seeing infections in higher age groups. And you can see that this is also clearly a disease that is uh, influencing people who live in poverty. So that's the um, below the federal poverty line. Um, and so we, we need to be able to reach out. We do now have highly effective prevention strategies, um, including pre-exposure prophylaxis. So let's talk about differences in populations. So I'd like to know what your thoughts are about how PrEP should be taken. Do you recommend daily PrEP for both men and women? Recommend less than daily dosing for men, but daily dosing for women? Recommend PrEP be taken pericoidally, um, for, but only for men? Recommend pericoidal PrEP for men and women? Or I don't actually recommend anyone take PrEP. So um, let's see what you all think. Okay. Let's try again. <laughs> okay, here we go. So daily prep for both men and women, and that's actually my recommendation as well. Um, so uh, we'll talk through some of the data about less than daily dosing. Um, this is um, a slide that many of you may have seen uh, showing effectiveness of various, uh, in various efficacy studies. Everything above the line is to the right of the 0% effectiveness. So you can see that all of these strategies have shown some degree of effectiveness. Most of them are these pink pills, which is uh, oral pre-exposure prophylaxis with uh, tenofovir emtocytabine um, and uh, a couple of ring studies and topical agents. And there's one vaccine study in here, which I'm happy to talk about um, if that comes up in the questions. But what you can see is that um, uh, tenofovir FTC co-formulated has very high levels of efficacy um, in the 80 to 86 percent um, le level uh, across populations. But it's not it's not been the same in all trials. And this is the proportion. This is the effectiveness mapped against the proportion of 
uh, participants in these trials that actually had drug detectable. Obviously, it only works if you take it. We saw high levels of efficacy, particularly in men who have sex with men. In these studies um, that were, uh, including the PROUD study, which was actually a not a randomized trial, it's unusual to see in a real-world setting in STD clinics that you actually achieve better protection than was seen in the original trial, but perhaps it's because it was not a placebo control trial. People knew they were getting an effective uh, strategy. Heterosexuals also, we've seen high levels of protection in a number of trials. Where we've seen lower levels of protection are in women. So we're going to come back to women and look at, is it just because most of the women in these trials didn't have detectable drug because they weren't using it, or was it, is it something else? So what do we know about effectiveness in men? We know that in Kaiser Northern California, almost 1,000 people have been treated so far. No new infections despite 42% uh, incidence, annual incidence of sexually transmitted infections. We did a prep demo project in San Francisco, um, DC, and Miami. Again, 51% had uh, sexually transmitted infections. There were only two breakthrough infections, and those occurred after uh, the study termination. And we've seen now uh, several reported cases in the literature, two men who were on uh, tenofovir just for hepatitis B uh, treatment who had breakthrough infections. You heard last year at CROI about this multi-drug resistant case of somebody who was highly adherent who became infected. And this year at CROI there was a report from the Amsterdam group about somebody infected um, who did not have resistant virus. These are the data from that study. You can see that they, the person was on PrEP for eight months followed on a monthly basis, um, very high levels of numbers of sex partners, about a third to uh, a half of the days, a third to two-thirds of the days was having condomless anal sex with an average of two to five partners per day. So this was a very highly exposed individual. Um, at six and eight months, they had dried blood spots on this individual, so you could measure the amount of uh, drug in the blood that's a cumulative measure over a period of about a month. And at eight months, the patient presented with fever and dysuria. They did an HIV test. Uh, it was antibody positive, antigen negative. Um, they stopped PrEP and virus um, was present three weeks later. No resistance mutation. So what we can say about PrEP is it's very, very highly effective. We've got this handful of breakthrough cases, but we, so we can't say that it's 100%. We know that that it, it can fail, and I think it's important for our patients to know that, but to know that if they take it on a daily basis, it's really quite highly effective. And in men who have sex with men, there's been this question about four days versus seven days, and that comes from some data from, from the um, IPREX study. The infection rate in placebos was almost 4% per year, and you could see this relationship in the tenofovir levels in the PBMCs that as the level was higher, the infection rate was lower. Superimposed on this are some data from a study that we did looking at um, directly observed therapy. Given two, four, or seven days a week in a low-risk group, but just to see what levels of drug there would be. And you can see that the four to seven times a week, the, the drug levels overlapped substantially. Um, two days a week, you still had, uh, the equivalent of two days a week, you still had um, infections, so 76% estimate estimated efficacy in men with sex with men for two days a week. If you go up to four days a week, it's 96%, seven days a week, 99%. So four days a week is roughly equivalent to seven days a week in men with sex with men, and it's because of the concentration of tenofovir in rectal tissue and the long half-life. So what about Ipergay? Ipergay was a study in which um, men with sex with men were told to take 
two pills two to 24 hours before sex, one pill a day following sex, and if they had multiple episodes of sex, to just keep taking one pill a day until two days after their last sexual episode. So the idea was, gee, on-demand prep tells you both when to start and when to stop prep. The issue is that this was a very highly sexually active group that were taking on average 18 pills a month or a little bit more than four a week. So I think we don't know about intermittent prep and whether or not in people who are taking, uh, who may be less sexually active, if they can time it appropriately and take it appropriately. There was though, whoops, sorry, a 97% reduction in uh, new infections compared with placebo when they did the open label trial. So 6.6% per year infection rate went down to about 0.2% per year. So that's great news. And intermittent prep may work, but there are some challenges. And one of the challenges is how well you have to take two doses, two to 24 hours before. And it looks like from the animal studies that a little bit closer to the 24 than the two hours is better. So we asked men in an online survey, do you plan your sex? And about half said, yes, we do. But when we asked how much in advance was it planned, um, you can see that it was <laughs> not necessarily long-term planning. So um, just something to consider when you're talking about planning. And there were, was another survey of uh, over 3,000 men online. And again, about half had unplanned sex. So for the people who are having unplanned sex, that may be more problematic. There's a study that I call, it's not its actual technical name, the Hope Springs Eternal Study, in which they were trying to get at, are men good at guessing when they're going to have sex, or estimating when they're going to have sex? Since they asked men, uh, 92 men, on a daily basis for 30 days, are you going to have sex tomorrow? And what they found was they were really good at figuring out when there was no chance they were going to have sex. But figuring out when they actually were going to have sex was much more problematic. And so this group of investigators suggested that the, the message be, skip your daily dose only if there's a 0% chance that you're going to have sex tomorrow, because um, it was hard to plan. There is, though, this issue about what I liken to malaria prophylaxis, which is going into a short-term period of risk, a, va a vacation um, vacation sex. And I've had patients come to me and say, you know, doc, I work really hard. I don't get out much. But when I go on vacation, I really go on vacation. And so I think that in that case, we really want to ask our patients, do you have anticipated periods where you may be at exceptionally high risk and be sure that they plan for their, their equivalent of malaria prophylaxis during those periods of time? Um, so we'll come back to talking about how would you guide people uh, about when to take drugs in that kind of situation. So there was data presented last year at the International AIDS Conference that got a lot of um, press about what's going on with women and is it just a question of adherence or might there be other biological factors that are uh, influencing women's um, uh, the, the efficacy of PrEP in women. And these were data that came from topical um, tenofovir gel in the Caprisa 004 study. And, sorry, I keep hitting the wrong button there. Um, we know that the healthy vagina is lactobacillus uh, predominant um, uh, bacteria at, with a low pH, and that with microbial dysbiosis, there are a number of other uh, bacteria that are present that um, are also associated with increased inflammatory responses and increased risk of HIV acquisition from a number of studies. And the data from the Caprisa 004 study, when they went back and looked at it, suggested that, in fact, um, the tenofovir gel worked in women, the subgroup of women who had a lactobacillus-dominant microbiota 
vaginally at baseline. Whereas if it was non-lactobacillus dominant, there was no significant efficacy. And when they went and looked at what was actually going on, it looked as though local me metabolism of tenofovir was different and that women who had Gardnerella vaginalis had lower levels of tenofovir in the cervicovaginal fluid um, and actually higher intracellular levels. So this was sort of hypothesis generating. And this year at Croy, Sharon Hillier presented data from a study, a phase one study of 41 healthy, non-pregnant, non-HIV-negative you know, women who were using daily uh, tenofovir film or gel for a week. What they did is they got baseline levels, baseline vaginal swabs, and they, they, gave, they ranked them with Nugent scores for bacterial vaginosis as well as measuring the bacteria that were present. And then they got um, the, a trough level of tenofovir in the vaginal fluid and in the blood just before the seventh dose. They gave them the seventh dose in clinic, and then two hours later did a cervical, vaginal, uh, uh, a cervical biopsy along with a blood level to see what was actually happening with um, tenofovir levels locally and systemically when exposed topically to tenofovir. And what you can see is that those with measures of vaginal dysbiosis, either by Nugent score or based on the actual bacteria that were present, had lower levels of tenofovir in the vaginal fluid and the cervical tissue and the plasma. And those that had a lactobacillus predominance actually had higher levels in vaginal fluid, cervical tissue, and plasma. So that confirmed the results of the Caprisa 004 study, suggesting that the vaginal microbiota may actually influence local metabolism of tenofovir, and that that's something that should be uh, considered when using topical agents. So the question was, does that influence oral tenofovir. And so there was also data presented from Renee Heffron at the um, CROI meeting about uh, PrEP efficacy in the Partners PrEP study, in which two-thirds, a third of the women got tenofovir alone, a third got uh, tenofovir FTC, a third got placebo. And they looked at, well, what was their Nugent score at baseline, and did that influence the efficacy of the um, of oral tenofovir, and what you can see here is it had no influence whatsoever on the efficacy, that the efficacy in the women with a nor normal um, Nugent score, normal vaginal microbiome was 73%, 77% in those with the highest score, and no interaction. So that's all very good news, and their conclusions were that that's reassuring that oral uh, tenofovir-based PrEP uh, is, doesn't, that women don't need to be tested for BV first, that it appears to be equally efficacious, and it's probably because we're administering it in a systemic way, and so the local uh, influences of uh, metabolism may not be uh, so important, and that probably a big piece then of the lower efficacy that we've seen in women really does have to do with supporting women and taking uh, oral agents on a daily basis. So one of the questions that arises is, well, when do you need to take it and how much do you need to take? And they, these are some data that there's a lot of controversy right now in the field and a lot of, um, a lot of discussion about what should the messaging be about when, when um, tenofovir should be taken. And what you can see is that 89% um, of the PBMCs have achieved a 90% effective concentration within a week. Um, and so this is blood levels and 98% by the 13th dose. Right now, the recommendation for men who have sex with men is start PrEP a week before you're going to, for instance, if you're going to go on vacation, start it a week before, take it on a daily basis, and you'll, you'll achieve fairly high levels. 
Um, the recommendation also from this paper um, and from CDC is continue it for 28 days after because you're, you're kind of using this as prep, although because we can see that levels drop uh, about 30 days afterwards um, here. Um, the recommendation for women is not as clear. So some are saying seven days, WHO recommends seven days for women. CDC recommends uh, 21 days for women to get, because the uh, tenofovir concentrates at about 100-fold lower levels in vaginal tissue than in rectal tissue. So I think we don't know exactly for women. What we do know is that women really do need to take the pill six to seven days a week. Uh, in order to achieve maximal efficacy. So what I tell my patients, my male patients is, um, you know, you need to take this on a daily basis, but if you miss a pill here or there, it's not gonna be a problem and you don't need to double up. For women, it's really important that you're taking this pill on a daily basis to maximize the um, efficacy of the, of the treatment uh, or of the prevention. And we have much less data in injection drug use. What we do know is that syringe exchange, um, clean needles, um, there were some interesting data on naltrexone uh, helping with viral suppression in people who are HIV positive. So we know that substance use treatment and just access to um, clean injection equipment is very important. And uh, Shinazo Cunningham is gonna be giving you a talk on opioid, um, the interaction of uh, opioids and injection drug use in, uh, in HIV. But the one efficacy study that we have from, from uh, Thailand showed that you needed to get 97.5% adherence under directly observed therapy to get over 80% effectiveness at the population level. So what we, what's not completely clear is, is this because it was tenofovir alone rather than uh, tenofovir co-formulated with FTC? Is it because it's an injection inoculum rather than a mucosal inoculum? And there were data presented at CROI this year from... Um, the, this uh, Thai trial that had 11 breakthrough infections in the study, five of whom had very high levels of adherence through directly observed therapy. They didn't report on resistance, so we're not sure about uh, those data yet, but it does look as though PrEP may be, it's still highly effective in, in people who inject drugs, but perhaps less effective than in other populations. So to some, there's more drug forgiveness in men who have sex with men, um, I think there's insufficient data about pericoital dosing, but I do think we should be asking our patients about periods of risk. For women, there's less forgiveness, so they need to take it at least six days a week, and it, but it, the good news is that it doesn't appear that BV or other perturbations in the um, vaginal microbiota uh, influence systemic PrEP, and for injection drug use, um, we may need very high levels of adherence, but remember that women who inject drugs are also at risk uh, sexually. Um, as are men, but often it's uh, women are at high risk that way. So my next question is, how do you advise a monogamous, what do you do in serodiscordant couples? What do you, uh, do you recommend that there's no need for condoms as long as the positive person is fully virally suppressed? No need for condoms if the negative person's on PrEP? You need both condoms, uh, you need both viral suppression and PrEP before stopping condoms, or everybody should use condoms anyway. So let's see what, what you have to say. Still a little sticky. Hmm. I'm trying. Here we go. 
Okay, so there's a range here, which is really interesting. Um, and I don't think that there's a right answer. Uh, so we're, we're gonna talk a little bit about um, uh, viral suppression and PrEP as a, uh, PrEP as a, a bridge for people who are uh, newly starting treatment. So you all know the 052 results that suggested that there was a you know, 90 plus percent reduction in new uh, HIV acquisition as long as the positive partner was treated and fully virally suppressed. They did in their final report report on eight linked infections that occurred in people who were on treatment, but four of them occurred um, within 90 days of uh, the person, the positive partner initiating treatment. So it's pretty clear that you need some period of time of viral suppression before transmission is much less likely to occur, and four occurred in the setting of uh, failure of viral suppression in the positive partner. So um, Joe alluded to this as well in some of the data from CROI, but these are some data that were published uh, in 2015. In a cohort of 14,000 patients who were in care, half of them or more had viral loads of greater than 1,500, which was the cut point in the, um, in the original study showing uh, transmission uh, being related to viral load, and that accounted for about a quarter of the, of the person time. So again, what I tell patients is, if you're in a stable relationship and you know your partner's virally suppressed and has been for a prolonged period of time, you're in pretty good shape, although I still, I think what we're learning from PrEP is nothing is completely 100%, but it's very high levels of protection. But when people are hooking up, and uh, they say, oh, well, but the guy told me he's virally suppressed. I think we've got to know what viral suppression is to really completely trust that. There were data presented from the uh, Partners PrEP study um, in which they used PrEP as a bridge um, to antiretroviral treatment. And so what they did was they took patients, serodiscordant couples, um, offered uh, antiretroviral treatment to the positive partner, gave PrEP for the first six months while the, the, um, while the person was stabilizing on antiretroviral treatment, or if they didn't start antiretrovirals initially, the positive partner, they kept PrEP going so that there was this six-month overlap. And what they found was a 95% reduction in transmissions. So again, it's a great strategy, and if people are fully virally suppressed, um, risk of transmission is very low, but they do need to be fully virally suppressed for um, a period of time that's at least uh, three months, probably. The issue with condoms is we do need to encourage condom use for sexually transmitted infections, um, but overall effectiveness is only in the 70 to 80 percent range in heterosexuals and in men who have sex with men, and it's probably both because of over-reporting of condoms, but also because condoms fail, and they fail more frequently with substance use and with um, with people who are not as familiar with using them, and that may be partly true um, for some of our younger populations as well. So it's just, I would never say don't give PrEP be because you should use condoms, because PrEP is probably more effective than condoms. What are the side effects, though, of PrEP, and what do we need to worry about in terms of safety? So we all know that um, it's a good idea to recommend that um, these are patients who are go taking PrEP who haven't been on antiretrovirals to warn them about a startup syndrome, particularly with some GI distress for the first couple of weeks that goes away, generally. That's, that's been the experience with PrEP. We do know that there is some reduction in renal function, and these are data from a variety of studies, um, all of which basically suggest that if your baseline GFR is less than 90, 
or if you're over 40 or in some studies over 50 years of age, there's a greater likelihood of a decline in GFR. It's generally a fairly modest decline that rebounds to normal after, um, uh, after PrEP is stopped. And also, in this Partners PrEP and Partners Demo study, 75% of the creatinine increases were unconfirmed on a repeat test. So I think we don't want to make ourselves crazy by getting so many creatinines and then chasing those down. Um, what they found in their study was there was no difference between three, every three and every six month testing. Um, in terms of bone mineral density, we do see uh, small declines in HIV negative populations on PrEP, and these are data from the IPREX study in which these are the under 25, uh, the over 25, um, placebo and what's the equivalent of placebo, people who had low levels of drug in their blood. But if they were taking it, we did see a decline that came back up, particularly after they stopped it and rebounded up to normal levels after it was stopped. So what we're seeing is like it's a 1% reduction. We have not seen any clinical evidence of bone fractures or negative uh, effects. There are some data from 16 to 17-year-olds now, although I think that we still don't know completely what the issues are for younger people who are growing. What about sexually transmitted infections? We know that there was a big rise in sexually transmitted infections before PrEP. PrEP may be influencing the number of sexually transmitted infections, and there was an interesting poster at, uh, at Croy that suggested that if we do every three-month screening for sexually transmitted infections when we give PrEP, we actually could lower the incidence of PrEP, uh, of STIs at a community level. But what we have seen from both RCTs and from open label studies is that there's no interaction, it doesn't appear that PrEP is less effective in the setting of sexually transmitted infections. Now we do have that one breakthrough case of somebody who was very highly exposed, but we haven't seen that the presence of sexually transmitted infections reduces PrEP um, effectiveness. Uh, so this is my summary for PrEP. Renal issues are rare, bone mineral density relatively small, STIs are okay. Resistance is an issue if uh, people start on PrEP when they're still infected. So you've got to just be really careful about that. So I'm going to close by talking about some population level impact. CDC's suggested that 1.2 million people in the United States could be good PrEP candidates based on risk practices. And uh, what we've seen is this rapid rise in uh, PrEP prescriptions. This is an underestimate. This is coming from about 80% of retail pharmacies uh, nationally, but that's 0.1% of where we should be. So what we know is we're not getting to everybody that we need to. In particular, we're not getting to younger people. So the under 25, uh, only 13% uh, of women and 6% of the male prescriptions, and we're not getting to people of color, and that's where our epidemic is most intense. And we need to find ways to deliver PrEP, to make PrEP uh, appealing, to have people know about PrEP, and to make it easy for our patients to get PrEP. Um, these were data about providers and how providers maybe um, need to be uh, better informed and better advocates for PrEP. So you can see there's been a significant increase. So now about two-thirds in 2015 in this national survey of primary care providers were aware of PrEP, but there's still that third that weren't aware. Um, the issue is that they're most likely to recommend PrEP for serodiscordant couples. But we just talked about we've got very highly effective prevention for serodiscordant couples, which is getting the positive partner on treatment. 
and yet the, the group they're least likely and the ones where the, the um, likelihood of recommending PrEP was going down was in people with sexually transmitted infections. And that's a group that we really need to actually try to target with our PrEP. So we're doing a uh, data, we've got data to care, we're doing a data to PrEP and really trying to go out and find men with syphilis and uh, rectal STIs and offering them PrEP. Now we know that ACA is changing and that the role of the primary care providers may also change as people need to now take on Google as their primary care provider. Um, but what I do want to recommend for you is the Project Inform website that helps us and helps our patients figure out how to navigate coverage, not just for the PrEP drugs, but also for all the lab work that needs to be done along with PrEP. And um, you can go to this website and get this flow chart, which they will keep updated. You're lucky in New York that you've got a, a drug assistance program specifically for PrEP. I think we don't know exactly what's going to be happening in the political landscape um, nationally, and um, we'll have to stay tuned. But we do have this highly effective treatment, uh, highly effective prevention. This is a summary of the guidance for uh, PrEP use. Please be sure that patients are tested for HIV. We've seen now a number of patients who are getting PrEP without being HIV tested first, which is problematic because tenofovirum tocytobine is inadequate treatment. Um, every three month STD screening, every three month HIV testing for women, uh, pregnancy testing, although there were some data that suggested that tenofovir was safe in pregnancy um, for, uh, when used as PrEP. So thank you very much and I'm happy to take questions. Spectacular. Uh, a really important topic, obviously, and increasingly, and kind of shockingly low rates of uptake still, so a lot of, a lot of work to do. Uh, so, if, uh, so I got so many questions that suggest maybe you weren't very good at communicating. Kidding. Um, lots of questions. Great. Um, we're not going to get through them all, but several people uh, wanted you to talk a little bit more about situations where you might initiate PEP. Yes. And make that transition between PEP and PrEP and, and maybe yes. at the same time another person says, tell me a little bit more details about HIV screening at the time you're starting. Great. So uh, HIV screening, try, use a fourth gen test. Make sure that patients don't have any symptoms when you're starting them on PrEP because we do see people who come in for, for PrEP who have had a recent exposure and are acutely infected. So. If you have any concerns at all, um, it, we get a fourth gen, we get a viral load, um, have them come back in a week or two if you need to to, to repeat uh, testing, although if, I guess if they've started on PrEP, then often their viral load will be, uh, uh, it, even if they're acutely infected, their viral load may be low, but you, they may be seroconverting, so you may be able to pick that up. Um, I, we do see a lot of people who we do recommend transition from PEP to PrEP. If they've been consistent on their PEP, again, just re repeat their testing. And we do an immediate transition from PEP to PrEP because if you stop and wait and then test them again, then they have the potential for being exposed again. So um, what we do is just give them three drugs to begin with uh, on PEP and then back off, uh, uh, take off the third drug and just leave them on the tenofovir FTC for uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis. There were some data that suggest in some rare cases that people may be late to seroconvert on a, a tra traditional, uh, in terms of their traditional antibody level. If they've been on PrEP and they uh, were, you caught them really early in infection, it still seems to be a fairly rare event. So again, just following their antibody if you have any questions. 
But um, what we would do is if somebody's, a, we have a concern about acute infection, start them on meds and follow their, start them on a, a treatment regimen and follow them along, and then, again, you can back off if they're not actually HIV infected. So I know that in our, uh, the clinic that I see patients at, we used to have resistance questions every clinic session. That was what we really focus on. Now it's PrEP. Um, so it's, it is very, it can be challenging. Then. So a couple questions about uh, TAF. Yes. Um, and obviously we know that tenofovir has certain side effects. TAF, we've been convinced, has less. Um, is it time to do that? Can you tell us about the trials? Yes. So there's a, it's, it's a really exciting time in PrEP because we, we will have other agents coming in and they're actually, you're going to hear some more about uh, HPTN 083 later, which is a study of long-acting cabotegravirus PrEP that's going to be, that has, I think, five sites in uh, New York that uh, you can enroll patients in. In terms of TAF, there is a study that has been launched comparing tenofovir amtricitabine to TAF amtricitabine. Um, it's going to take a while before we have those data. So we don't yet know what the data are. I've certainly had uh, providers come to me and say, but I've got a patient with uh, these reasons that they can't take a tenofovir-based regimen. We're still in a data-free zone. We hope it will work. We think it will work. It works in uh, non-human primates, but we don't yet have the human data. We will have that soon. And there will be other long-acting uh, agents that will be coming into the pipeline, including um, implantables in the next few years. So uh, I see a question card hanging in the air. Nope, okay, never mind. Um, so a, a, a kind of a social issue, uh, a young person still on parents' insurance. Mm -hmm. um, any way around that? The yes. child does not want the parent to know. So one of the things is that um, I actually don't know what New York law is. In California, um, you the, the patient can tell their provider that they do not want the information going to the parent. That said, it is really challenging when you get patients who are now up to age 26, and let's hope that that stays, maybe on their parents' insurance and may not want their parents to know. So if they're over 18, they'll still qualify for Gilead Assistance Program. Um, but if they're under 18, what we're doing is we're doing demonstration projects. And we've also created an emergency supply of uh, PrEP drug specifically for those patients so that we can give it to them if they, they don't want to disclose to their parents that they're on, that they, that they need PrEP. And yet, that's a group that's highly vulnerable, uh, may not yet have the skills to negotiate uh, and navigate either condom use or know a lot about their partners. So um, we, we do recommend, we do recommend PrEP, even though right now the license indication is only to age 18. Our hope is that their data that have gone to FDA that will um, lower the lower age um, of coverage. So another uh, question that I can anticipate the answer, uh, we don't know yet, but when is it appropriate to double up? You mentioned kind of four times a week. Is it, do you ever tell people to take a couple pills if they, you know, if there's a gap? Or even the question was, uh, add an integrase inhibitor for a period of time. So, I mean, the good news is uh, tenofovir-based PrEP, tenofovir and tocitabine together um, appears to be highly effective. Um, for, for the uh, hypergase study, they did suggest two pills as kind of a loading dose. Um, the recommendation is still just take one pill a day, and certainly with men, I can say if you skip a dose, don't worry so much about it. With women, you could consider 
are there times when they should double up on a dose if they've missed? But what I also tell my patients is if you've missed for seven days, come back in so we can at least reevaluate and uh, retest if needed because what we really don't want is for people to be acutely infected and on inadequate treatment. So Susan, the last question, and, and there are more, but we don't have time. Uh, just tell us a little bit more about the older people that are, uh, that are getting infected. What do we know about the demographics of HIV uh, acquisition in that age group? Well, I think, you know, some of the older people um, are being just diagnosed later, but I do think that there are older people who are, uh, again, older at the ripe age of, you know, 45, um, are, uh, are sexually active and are becoming infected. I don't have the details from the national data on that uh, particular group or what's going on here locally. What we know is that there still are these disparities of uh, race, race, ethnicity um, that we're seeing, and as you heard, an increase in new infections in Latinos. What we're also seeing in, in San Francisco, I don't know if you have the same thing in New York, is that we get people who are newly moving to the city. That, and a lot of uh, foreign um, immigrant, immigrants from outside of San Francisco, but also outside of the country, who are coming to San Francisco and things that may have been safe in their home environments may no longer be safe, and so they're becoming infected. And so we've actually talked about having a new in town kind of um, uh, effort to get prep out to individuals in that kind of situation. Thanks so much, Susan.